Ananda is not like so many communities, sort of with a fence around it, us, few, and no more. Ananda is everybody, the whole community, not just those who come to Ananda services, but those who don't, those even who don't like Ananda. It doesn't matter, because all of us are children of the same one God. And so the truth that we're trying to emphasize, that we do emphasize, is not sectarian. It's not particular to one religion or another. It's particular to humanity and the human growth toward its own self-realization and self-fulfillment. This is what our path is all about. And the uh, ideal is expressed here in uh, a way that will be, for some of you, rather esoteric, rather deep. But what we try to do at Ananda is always try to, is always to bring those deeper truths down to the light of day. I'll tell you more about what I mean in a moment. But first I want to read from Yogananda's explanation of the Rubaiyat of Omakhayam, the Quatrain 33. Then to the rolling heaven itself I cried, asking what lamp had destiny to guide her little children stumbling in the dark, and a blind understanding, heaven replied. And the paraphrase is, my soul soared ecstatically through heavenly spheres. I compared my joyous state with that of my earth-bound earth brothers. I saw them stumbling about in darkness and confusion, dazed by ignorance and clutched at by misery. I saw them dragged forward by the chains of self-created karma, transported endlessly from human birth, fraught with fearful risks and uncertainties, to unwilling death. What guides them, I demanded of omniscience, what lamp have they to lead them out of error? What wisdom to help them not to endure further suffering? And the inner voice replied, theirs is the blindness of their human intellects. Wise they may be in worldly ways, but in spiritual matters they are foolish because ignorant. Their intelligence, lacking the light of all-seeing intuition, is not guided by understanding, but by blind instinctual desires. With all their worldly cunning, their lives lack any clear aim or purpose. Their understanding darkened, they stumble again and again, and often fall into yawning pits of delusion. The expanded meaning it is difficult for even great and wise souls to know the truth completely. How all but impossible it is then for the spiritually ignorant to catch more than fitful glimpses, if that, of clear direction in their lives. They are guided by instinct, which, though it contains a glimmer of intelligence, is essentially blind. What opportunity have they to learn the laws of life except by a slow process of trial and error. They do learn gradually, 
For when they act rightly, they experience happiness, and when they act wrongly, they suffer. When they act kindly and selflessly, they find pure happiness welling up within them. That happiness, as its flow increases, steers them gently toward the spiritual world within. Sometimes their awakening understanding gets mixed up with pride, sometimes with superstition. Still, however slowly, their steps take them incarnation by plodding incarnation in the direction of wisdom. And the editorial comment, the tone of this stanza seems uncharacteristically harsh, yet it springs from, from a feeling of deep compassion for mankind. The very reprimand is rooted in love, for so convinced is man of his own intelligence and of his infallibility in confrontation with any predicament that Omar apparently felt it necessarily to, necessary to deal him a sharp reprimand. Only when a human being admits, I've tried my best, but I've failed. Show me, Lord, the way to lasting happiness. Does hope dawn for his eventual enlightenment? Otherwise, consider even the self-help concepts and techniques that flourish nowadays in the marketplace. Most of them, while providing a little temporary relief, help people merely to exchange one room in the mansion of ego consciousness for another. They provide relief, figuratively speaking, from a mosquito bite, but ignore the tragic fact that, that the patient is under a death sentence from cancer. There is only one way out of this Venus's flytrap of delusion. It is, as Omar Khayyam hints, and as Paramahansa Yogananda so beautifully explains, to reverse the life force and consciousness back toward life at its very source. The first step on the journey is to place oneself under the guidance of someone who is truly wise, a saint or sage who has in his life solved the riddle of existence. Intelligence should not be confused with wisdom. There are many highly intelligent fools in the world who use their intellects to justify, not to eliminate their delusion. To follow those who are merely intellectually clever or learned is to add their ignorance to the burdens we already carry. The part that I want to talk about initially that will be at first strange to you is that spiritual awakening is not some sort of vague mystical experience and Master didn't like the word mystical because it seemed to imply vagueness and uh, sort of a cloudy poetic fancy. Whereas what he taught, the teachings of ancient yoga and all true teachings, in fact, although less specifically many of them, point to very particular realities. The reality in this case may be tied to something that you will find in every scripture. Every scripture says that heaven is above and hell is below. Well, no telescope has ever shown us angels flying around in outer space nor has any well-drilling equipment brought up screaming and protesting demons. <laughs> Earth 
and hell, and uh, I mean, heaven and hell are not up and down, objectively speaking. What is up for us is down for people in Australia. It has no cosmic relevance, but it has in, uh, infinite relevance to the individual. And you can see this in our instinctive responses to life. We always say when we feel uplifted or high or downcast and low, we always use expressions that are tied to these simple facts that spiritual awakening implies an awakening or a raising of energy and consciousness in the body and hellish consciousness materialistic consciousness, that's which takes us away from joy and down into suffering and pain, is always a descent. And uh, I'm going to have a little side, a little a wry comment on the side. Why do people have to speak of falling in love? Never mind, For change the subject. <laughs> <laughs> Cancel that. The truth is that every time we feel wonderful, there's an, a raising energy. We look up. You never see people looking up and say, I feel so depressed. <laughs> and you never see people looking like this and saying, I feel so happy. <laughs> Quite the contrary. These are universal truths. Now, what yoga does is particularize it. It says that there is an energy in the spine. It doesn't just say it like a dogma. It says, try it, experience it. And everybody who has tried it has experienced it. And we can also relate it to a few other specific things. You notice that people who were very materialistic, sensual, gross, all their energy is downward. And you see the way they sit, the way they walk, everything. Because so, their energy is pulling their consciousness down. Now, when people speak of love, it's always, and in all cultures, related to the heart. Because there is actual feeling of love in the heart. This is not um, a big mystical or metaphysical thing. It's an actual fact that we can experience. You've never heard, nor can you really imagine, anybody, some young swain, has been disappointed in love, saying, I have a broken knee. <laughs> they all feel it in the heart. It's something that you, you can't get away from because this is how we are made. And you can call yourselves Christian, Hindu, communist, capitalist, all, all those definitions mean absolutely nothing before the fact that here we are, children of God, and when we die, God isn't going to ask you, have you been a good disciple of Yogananda? Have you been a good Catholic? Have you been a good Muslim? Have you been a good Hindu? He's not going to ask any of that. He'll say, do you love me? And that love begins here in the heart. And in fact, they've even found in recent, in the recent discoveries that there are actually more gray cells in the heart than in the brain. At least if I quoted it wrong, forgive me, I am not a scientist. But they have been amazed to see that the same ability to be conscious and think exists also in the heart. And anybody who's done any sensitive work uh, in music, in art, Anybody who has meditated deeply knows that the heart understands what the brain can never understand. You can never put in words even such a simple thing as a definition of love. Look it up in the dictionary. It will not give you the experience of love. It can't. 
It's a whole different level of understanding. So there's another. Now there's another one, another chakra, as they call these centers in the spine in yoga, and that is at the point uh, just behind the throat. Now this is a little bit more difficult, but I remember a very interesting experience I had in San Francisco because I was recording uh, an Indian mantra, Sri Ram, Jai Ram, Jai Jai Ram, and I was, I recorded it and I, I, at the end of it, I suddenly felt my energy going into this throat chakra. And I said to the recording engineer, let's do it again. He said, what do you mean? That was perfect. I said, no, let's do it again. And I, I knew it was different. He couldn't tell, but I could. And it was so curious to me, and I've often told this story, because a friend of mine had a little child, two years old, and uh, he, she was scolding him once. He loved this particular song, and I guess he felt this expansion of consciousness that comes with that chakra, because when she began scolding him, he looked up at her like he said, Sri Ram, Jay Ram. <laughs> <laughs> because he had felt that expansion of peace, he wanted to convey that to her. And then there's another thing that you'll notice that is something that we can all, visual, all observe and experience, that uh, when people are excessively egotistical, this center here in the medulla oblongata at the base of the brain is the seat of ego. And you'll find that when people are very egotistical, look at a picture of Ayn Rand if you want to know what I'm talking about. The tension in the back of the neck, which comes from an excess of energy buildup in the medulla, draws the neck back. You look at rock singers and people are out there trying to show themselves off. All from here. And you just think of yourself sometimes. Somebody says something and you feel flattered. <laughs> Isn't it so? Why is it so that in every religion, the expression of humility is a bow, a relaxation of tension here, and an offering. Now that offering has to be, however, more than to another person. It has to be to the positive center of that particular, the positive pole of that particular center, which is the point between the eyebrows. And you'll notice that people, when they concentrate deeply, they tend to knit their eyebrows. When people feel uplifted, they look up, because there's this focusing of energy at this point. And I remember one time at 29 Palms when I was with Yogananda, and uh, there was a neighborhood dog who used to come over, and we were having lunch, and Master said, look at that dog, he's so focused on the smell of that food that his brow is wrinkled. <laughs> his whole concentration is the spiritual eye. <laughs> These are things we can all check in one way or another. But when you go deeper, then you understand that there's a reason for all of it, which is that when the energy is uplifted, we begin to approach divine consciousness and the intuition that we're talking about here. Now, in the beginning, there are all these gates that need to be unlocked. And in fact, the stanza just before this one in Omar Khayyam is uh, I've, well, I don't have to read the words, but it's up through the seven gates. The seven gates are these chakras, are centers of energy and consciousness in the spine. 
And you'll notice that most people are locked in their lower chakras and it may seem absurd to say you notice, but you can see it from their behavior. You can see it from the way they walk. You can see it from everything. Their body language says it, their eyes say it. You can tell instantly that they're locked in the lower chakras. Therefore, they speak of beer bellies and all that. It's the lower consciousness and they're held there. Now, the question of reason versus intuition doesn't necessarily arise at that level. There are, however, two faculties that we have that help us to achieve spiritual enlightenment or that prevent us from it. And the first of these is the heart. When the energy comes up to the heart center, that's where feeling becomes awakened. And that's why Sri Yukteswar said that unless and until a person's heart is opened, he cannot begin to set foot on the spiritual path. No point even in talking to him. But once the heart opens, that's when you find problems arising, emotions or love. Deep confusion or deep feeling and intuition. This is the beginning of the spiritual awakening. When, that, when the feeling center is no longer, oh, I can't stand it. I mean, just imagine how many people are likely to be if, and perhaps I should say when, a real depression hits. You see headlines about that every day in the newspapers. The possibility, will it, won't it? I'm perfectly certain it will be. But how will most people react? They'll get so agitated they won't be able to think. It's like people in a theater. There's a perfectly clear exit sign. They're all so confused they don't know where to turn. They get in each other's way and many of them are killed because of not being able to simply walk out the exit. That's why they say, walk, don't run to the nearest exit. But the emotions keep you running, and they keep you running in circles. And so the first and most important thing is to learn to direct the energy of your spine and the aspiration of your consciousness upward. But with that, there still has to be uh, further enlightenment. There has to, you have to get through that door of the ego. As long as the ego is there, it's always going to bring it back to me. Well, aren't I intelligent? I'm a lot smarter than them. I know this is a spiritual path and this is the right way and I, I, and pretty soon you wonder what path am I talking about? Because you're not on the spiritual path. You've come a certain distance. There are all these traps and they really are traps that can hold you from awakening to a higher state of consciousness. The ego has to be surrendered. Don't think in terms of you, but of he. And the next trap is reason, intellect. And the intellect can be a great trap. And yet it's very necessary when we say that intuition is more important than reason. We do not mean that reason is not important. But the thing is that reason will not give you wisdom. Reason will never be able to create a great work of anything, not even a scientific discovery. You know, scientists, the great scientists, they use their reason, yes, but up to a certain point. And then suddenly, after going step by step by step, suddenly there's a huge leap. That's the intuition. And without that intuition, it'll always be like crossing a road. You know Zeno's paradox? 
You can never cross a road. Why? Because to get across, you have to first go halfway across. Then you have to go half the remaining distance, then half the remaining distance of that, and then half of that. And no matter how microscopic you get, it'll always be half the distance. Therefore, you'll never be able to reach the other side of the road. Well, this is reason, but intuition says, <laughs> reason, intuition says, don't be ridiculous. It just jumps across the road. So every scientist has this, this thing and the great ones break through it and the minor ones don't. And they think they're so, they're so smug in their wisdom when they don't really know anything because it's only reason. But intuition is necessary. Scientists come to that point. You know, Einstein, for example, discovered the law of relativity in a flash. Yes, certainly he had been using his mind. If, if you're going to pray to God for a scientific insight, he's not going to give you a poetic one. He's going to give you a scientific one. You will receive in accordance to what your, the kind of energy you put out. And God doesn't wait for you to name him. He doesn't, he's not flattered when you believe in him. But when you put that energy out, whether you pray to him consciously or not, you're putting out, you're reaching out to the truth. And truth is God. And that truth will answer you, but according to your own lights. And so Einstein certainly was reasoning and thinking and so on. But in his own way, mind you, his professors marked him as an absolute hopeless, he'd, have a, uh, he'd be a complete failure in life because he couldn't think in their way. But obviously he thought in a very valid way, but he reached this point where suddenly he had the insight of the law of relativity. Could he then announce it to the world? No, because it was although so clear to him to make it clear to other people, he had to approach them through reason. And so he had to explain it. It took him 10 years to be able to present that law in such a way that other scientists would say, well, yes. And even then it was so difficult that for a long time there were only, it was said, 10 scientists in the whole world who understood his law. The fortunate thing for him was that they were the, they were the right scientists. People, other people respected, and so having said it, other people were ready to listen. But all great discoveries have come that way. You know, Singer's sewing machine even was invented that way. That Singer just couldn't understand how to do it. He reached a certain point where it just wouldn't come straight, and then he had a dream at night where he saw these savages of some primitive country fighting each other with spears, and every spear had a hole in the tip. And suddenly he understood. You had to put the hole of the needle, not where it usually is, but in the tip. And then the singing, singer showing, sewing machine was invented. But you will find that this is true in everything in life. You have to understand that intuition transcends and supersedes reason. But it is not something you can sit back and wait to happen. You have to do the work. You have to think it through in whatever plane you're in. Reason is still important. And people who deny it are the ones who come up with these vague, goofy, uh, mystical suggestions like this woman who, oh man, I don't know which it was, went up to the Himalayas to find a great teacher 
Finally, after clambering crag after crag, braving snow and rain and sleet, he finally got there and found this man in a cave. And he said, great master, tell me the secret of life. And the master paused a moment. He said, life, my son, is a rainbow. He said, you mean I've come all this way, climbed these crags, braved snow and ice and everything, only to find that life is a stupid rainbow? And the sage said, you, you, you mean it, it isn't a rainbow? <laughs> well, you know, stories like that are told by people who don't know sages and don't know truth. But it's a good thing to understand that just mysticism isn't going to give it to you. So many teachers, you know, I, in this book here, I talk about my years in the 60s in San Francisco, and I was exposed to so much of this goofy, uh, oh, I feel it must be so. Well, that doesn't tell you anything. Feeling is right, but the right feeling, they didn't look from their lives that they had the right feeling, it was just feeling. You need to use intuition, but it has to be guided and controlled by reason. If somebody comes up with something that makes no sense at all, then intuition, I mean, reason has to come in and say, no, wait a minute. Truth is not afraid of questions. That's what Yogananda said to somebody when he was challenged. But truth also is not interested in harebrained intellectual questions, like the story that I told in the path of somebody who was very intellectual and came to Master with this long list of very, he thought, intellectual questions. And he asked the first of them and waited for a profound answer, and Master said, love God. He could see where the man was coming from. It was all just mental exercise, didn't mean anything. He had no understanding. So the man sort of shrugged and went on to his next question, and Master said, love God, a little more firmly. The man sort of shook his head and went on to the third question. Master said, love God, got up and walked out. <laughs> <clears throat> well, this man, who is a speaker uh, in this country today, uses this as an example that, well, even masters have their problems. <laughs> the truth is, he had the problem. You don't find the truth by that, and if you're going to ask that kind of question, it's not worth the bother. You'll never get through. There has to come what Sri Yukteswar said, until you have awakened the heart's natural love. You cannot take a single foot, you cannot put one foot in front of the other on the spiritual path. There has to be that aspiration. The heart's in understanding and natural instinct toward love has to be awakened. And without that, what you're faced with in this country, what you're faced with here in Silicon Valley, what you're faced with in this age, not to blame anybody, is a time when people think they can get it all together and understand by mere definition. They won't understand anything until they have understood it also with their hearts. When I write music, I know how important it is to consult my heart. Let my heart guide me, but let it guide me in a mood that's upward, because it's so easy for the heart to go downward too. So easy for the heart to go toward desires, moods, unhappiness. Lots easier to write about negative moods than positive ones. It's sort of like a hose. If you want a strong flow, one simple way is to squeeze the hose tip, isn't it? But of course, uh, another way would be to turn on the tap more fully. 
But when you don't have much understanding, when you don't have much refinement, when you don't have much of uh, uh, anything in the sense of intuition, the easiest way to get a sense of powerful feeling is anger, passion, despair, gloom. All these negative emotions are squeezing the heart and as a result you get some sort of feeling in the heart and you think that's really heartfelt. Well, what kind of feeling are we talking about is the issue here. The music that you write, the words that you write, the words that you speak, Whatever you do in life, in fact, should have this uplifting feeling. And that you can only do by not squeezing your heart and making it small, not thinking in terms of selfishness, but rather openness. And that takes a lot of energy. But the more that energy can flow, the more you feel as a, a powerful upthrust. This is why it can't come quickly. You know, when I was a young man, I wanted to be a poet and a playwright. And I quit because I realized I did not know the truth and I was not going to fool my public. I didn't want to flood the world with my ignorance. I quit writing altogether. When I met Yogananda, he told me my work was writing and lecturing. And I knew that it should be, but I didn't even try really to write for 20 years. Because I believed that I had to get on the right wavelength. And this is what it has to be with your spiritual path, too. Oh, sure, you can become very dogmatic. Jesus is the only way, or Muhammad's the only way, or Krishna, if you don't worship Krishna, you'll go to whatever. But the truth is that it's all an openness of heart that embraces everybody. That's the kind of love you want. And that can come only if it's guided somewhat by reason also. Reason can say, sort of skeptically. Oh, so you think Jesus is the only way? In what way do you say Jesus is the only way? Well, we have Christian humility. Are you saying that Hindus, Muslims can't be humble? Well, no. You know, you use your reason a little bit and you begin to see that everything that justifies a Christian being a Christian is something that everybody in the world who is sensitive and refined practices. There is no difference, really, between a sincere Christian and a sincere Hindu. Sincerity, spiritually speaking, means loving God. So when your reason is used in the right way, and it has to be guided, because otherwise, you see, you've got this passageway, but it has all these corridors going off in so many different directions, and so you can reason yourself blue in the face and not arrive at the truth. That's why I always have been suspicious of reason by itself. But if you allow reason to guide you, you will find that bit by bit, it will find that way, if the heart is there too, find that way that wants to move upward, doesn't want a sidetrack, is not interested in something just because it makes sense. Many things make sense, but that doesn't make them true. What is true, the heart will help you to decide. Finally, however, what you need to do is first get yourself together, yes. Get all this energy flowing upward from your lower nature toward the higher, from your ego offered up to the light in the forehead. But then, that's not enough either. You know, it's a very interesting thing. We have, do we have it there? Yeah, see that? That's sort of symbolic of the spiritual eye that appears in deep meditation. And it's really a reflection of the medulla oblongata, which in deep calmness appears in the forehead.
And we had in our, in our temple in Italy, we decided we wanted to do this. And so they, uh, they took to Murano, which is near Venice. It's the place where they make all that wonderful glasswork in Italy. They took it to this man who seemed materialistic and not, they just wondered how they were ever going to get across this idea. But they showed him that painting of mine on the path that uh, shows the spiritual eye, the blue field and the gold ring, and then the star in the center. And I'm not going to go into that in detail, but they showed this to him and he just about fainted. He said, I've been seeing this for years. I haven't known what it meant. <laughs> I've had it happen to me not a few times, quite a few, which, where people have said, yes, I've seen that. Some of them very matter-of-factly, some of them like him, absolutely astounded that anybody else could tell him what it was. But it is universal. You all have it. Just as you have eyes, a stomach, a heart, all of you have this spiritual light in the forehead, and that's what it looks like when the mind is calm. And this experience is still just the beginning. There is another aspect to this reason and intuition. And that aspect is that we have to go out into the infinite, but then we also have to bring it in. And whatever we say is still going to be filtered by our spiritual eye, our ego, our heart, all our chakras, it'll still be filtered. The same one divine teaching, vision, is given differently through every sage. And this is the symbol. Can you see this? Have you, you've seen it, all of you, most of you have seen our, our joy symbol. The words are, joy is within you. And what you have is this sort of like a soaring mountain coming up to a peak, and then the light or the soul soaring upward into the light, and then it comes down. You see there's an arrow like a bird flying down to earth. And the idea is that the soul must, must aspire toward God, but then it must receive God and let God instruct it and bring God down, bring that divine experience down into the body, into one's earthly experience. We have to live outwardly that which we experience inwardly. That's the meaning of this symbol. Is it visible? Have you hidden it, David? Okay. <laughs> this symbol, it's a very deep one. And what we need to do in meditation is, yes, offer ourselves to God. But understanding is not complete until God has spoken to us. The it's only half the battle to give yourself to him. Then listen. In meditation, listen. In prayer, listen. Meditation is different from prayer, basically in this, that it is a process of listening, not just talking to God. That when you offer yourself up wholly to him and intuitively to him, so that in your intuition you can experience him, then let that experience fill your whole being. Let him talk through you. Let him feel through you. Let him think through you. Let your thoughts be his thoughts and you will find that then and then only will you really understand. And most people of deep understanding have had some of this, and most of them, even if they haven't been able to offer all their energy up, have offered it to some extent and received glimmerings of reply, 
And the trouble is that so many people, like the six blind men who were cleaning an elephant, each insisting that the elephant was something different because each, and each speaking from experience, but each saying, well, I know that the elephant is a long hose. He'd been cleaning the trunk. And the other said, no, no, he's a couple of bones. He'd been cleaning the tusks. The other one said, well, I know from experience, he's a wall. He'd been doing the sides. No, no, he's four pillars. The other one said, what are you talking about? He's a couple of fans. And so everybody has the experience of God. And everybody's experience of God, too, is different. Because how can you? I remember this story of St. Augustine who was out walking on the beach. And I guess he was getting a little proud of his wisdom because he happened upon a little child who had a bucket and was trying, he went to the ocean, and took the water from the ocean, spilled it on the sand. And Augustine said, well, what are you trying to do? He said, oh, I'm, I'm trying to uh, empty the sea. Uh, and so I'm just using my bucket to empty the sea. And St. Augustine said, well, don't you think that's pretty ridiculous? The sea is much too big. Besides which, of course, it all goes into the sand and goes back into the sea anyway. And the child looked at him and he said, and isn't it just as ridiculous for you with your little mind to think that you can empty the ocean of God? And he disappeared. And so St. Augustine knew what the, le what the lesson was, that we can't empty God of truth. We can only express a tiny, tiny fraction of that truth, and the masters give you those little fractions that are pertinent to the times in which people live, and it's sort of like two people who've been told to go to the equator, and people in the northern hemisphere go south, people in the southern hemisphere go north, and when they pass each other, that one says, no, you're supposed to go north, you're supposed to go south. And the other one says, no, 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 north. And so they get all excited about this apparent contradiction in the teachings. When the teaching was very, very simple, go to the middle. That's what religion is all about, and that's what the warfare in religion is all about. Masters come to correct imbalances. They don't bring us absolutes because you can't express truth absolutely. But they do say, this is what you need to get back to that center. And where is that center? In yourself, in your spine, at your spiritual eye. It's that simple. Don't let anybody hook you on extraneous dogmas. But your reason is needed. Without that, you can become fanatical. That's why Master said that intuition, too, should be kept in a state of reason. But ultimately, without that intuition, you'll never understand anything. Intuition is a faculty all of us have. Intuition is that quality, that faculty, with which we can, it's the soul's power of knowing God. With intuition, you, can, you, you know. And there's no question anymore. You do know. Einstein could have said with absolute certainty that I know this is so. He tried to put it in a reasonable way, but he himself said that the essence of all science, true scientific discovery is a sense of mystical awe. There has to be that. Don't think that because you're intelligent that you're wiser than anyone else. Sometimes somebody who is quite not unintelligent, you can't know God and not be intelligent, but their interest in intelligence is very different from what we usually think of. 
an ability to solve the Sunday crossword puzzle and so on. No, it's not that. It's a direct knowing. And when you find a saint like that, I remember Master, there's a picture of him. I wish it let, they'd let it out. It's so beautiful. It's Master meeting this other Master who was fully liberated, as he told me. And the first moment of their meeting with Master's hand out like that and saint looking at Master with such a wonderful expression of recognition and joy. When saints meet saints, there is that. God is meeting God. God is recognizing God. Don't be satisfied with anything less. Be true to your own higher self, and that in that you will be true to God. God bless you.